Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. To boldly go where no one has gone before has a great ring to it, and it started many a Star Trek episode and movie ago, but breaking the glass ceiling to boldly go where no woman has gone before can describe our guest today, who is the first woman to walk in space. She was also the first woman to go to the deepest point in space, and the first woman to dive... Wait a minute, I want to make sure, because this is from producer notes. Is that accurate, Kathy? Yeah, no, first American woman to walk in space, not okay. first overall. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah so I, I want to make sure uh, we get that right. First woman to challenge her deep is correct, and I would love it if you would add in there that that actually makes me, according to Guinness World Records, the most vertical person in the world. <laughs> no, I want, let's, let's let you say that on the podcast. Okay, so, all right. Because yeah, so, I like the way you said that. So I, I wanna, I'm going to start that over so I can make sure first American woman, because I, yeah, I have production notes that the Weather Channel provides for me, but sometimes they're lost. So I'm glad I caught that. All right, three, two, one. To boldly go where no man has gone before has a great ring to it, and it started many a Star Trek episode and movie ago, but breaking the glass ceiling to boldly go where no woman has gone before can describe our guest today, who is the first American woman to walk in space and the first woman to go to the deepest point in the ocean, Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. These are just a few of the accomplishments of my guest today. Today, we'll talk about breaking barriers and the amazing career of Dr. Catherine Sullivan. Uh, I know her as Kathy, uh, Dr. Sullivan, whatever we call each other. I've known her for some time, a great colleague and friend. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I vote for Kathy and Marshall. Okay, let's we we do. I, I accept the vote. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us. This is this is really a coup for us to get you on the podcast because you know I'm so excited to introduce uh, you to the, the the rest of the world. Many people already certainly know who you are, but the Weather Geeks listeners who don't, you're in for a treat today. And I want want to start with something you said. You were in the Guinness Book of World Records. I understand. Tell us why. I actually have three Guinness World Records, as it turns out, and I, I got them, well, one event on June 7th of last year was the capstone to all three of them, as it turns out. Uh, so I am, uh, as Guinness recognizes, the first woman to reach the deepest point in the world's ocean, like you said, the Challenger Deep. I'm also the first person to both orbit the planet and reach its deepest point, and I'm also the way I phrase it, their phrasing is a little bit clumsier, but Guinness World Records has acknowledged me as the most vertical person in the world, from the deepest point in the world's oceans to the altitude of the space shuttle mission on which we delivered the Hubble Space Telescope to orbit. Now, there's a minor caveat to that. They added most vertical person or person to travel the greatest vertical extent in Earth's exosphere, because obviously, if you count the guys that went to the moon, that's a whole lot further away from Earth. But, but I argue that's kind of cheating because that's not around Earth. You went somewhere else. Right. And so 
you can certainly see now why we call this episode going to extremes. Before we really dig into some of those extremes, let me give you a little bit of uh, Dr. Selma. You know, it's just, I, I do know Kathy and call her Kathy, but it's still just, I respect her so much as a colleague that I still default to call her Dr. Sullivan at times. She has a bachelor of science degree in earth sciences from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a PhD in geology. For Boy, I'm, I may not get this name of the university. <laughs> Dal, how do you pronounce that? That. Dalhousie. Dalhousie. Dalhousie University, 1978. She joined NASA in 1978, was a part of the first astronaut groups to include women, and she performed the first extravehicular activity, EVA, by an American woman during the Space Shuttle Challenger mission, STS-41G, on October 11, 1984. And she served on the crew of STS-31, which launched from Kennedy Space Center on 1990. During that mission, uh, the Discovery deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. She left NASA in 1993 uh, after flying several other uh, space shuttle missions, logging 532 hours in space. There are many other things that I'm going to share. She was the former head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Weather geeks certainly know NOAA because it's the parent agency of the National Weather Service. So, gosh, where to start? I mean, I mean, you know, I usually ask weather geeks, guess how they became weather geeks are interested in weather. <laughs> How did you become a science geek? How did you really get into science? Is it a kid story or an experience? You know, it, it is a kid story. It's, it's like a second grade story within one massive detour that led to a, a massive reversal many years later. So uh, in second, second grade, we had a moment where we were each allowed to go to the library and pick any book we wanted to pick. I don't remember why I picked the one I did, but I do remember it was about rocketry. So in second grade, this would be 1956 or seven, maybe, maybe Sputnik has happened. My father was an aerospace engineer. So that may have been where the whole, you know, dad, daddy's interested in things. So little girls are interested in those things too, to some degree. Um, but I remember that book distinctly because it was in that book that I learned that there is such a thing as escape velocity the speed you have to reach in order to break free of Earth's gravity and go somewhere else like the moon or Mars. And just the whole notion that there is such a thing and that, and that it is known, like how do people, how does that happen that you know that thing like that thing exists and you know what it is? That sort of dazzled me. Uh, but by about fifth grade, I had recognized a flair for foreign languages, which seemed a better fit for my true desire which, to, which was to find a way that somebody bought me airplane tickets so I could travel to and live in and work in and really come to know other countries and other cultures on the planet. So fifth grade to, frankly, starting college, that was the game plan I was working on. Uh, and in college, when I was forced to take several natural science courses, uh, one was a marine biology course, one a general oceanography course, physics, chemistry, biology, and geology. and I saw in front of me in these two young professors the kind of adventurous and inquisitive life I had seen in astronauts and you know read about in archaeologists and people like that. But you know, I, what did I know for how many kinds of jobs there are in the world that, that are intrinsically adventurous and inquisitive? I I I didn't know that any of that really until I watched astronauts on television and read about aquanauts in magazines and then bingo, saw these two basically oceanographers standing in front of me telling their tales about you know, exploring the ocean and traveling to exotic places to join a ship to go figure out how something else worked. And I right away said, man, 
forget the language pathway. I'm going with them. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, again, that's, you know, it's always interesting to hear that start because the stories are so interesting. And I know that we have some younger people that listen to this podcast. We're talking with Dr. Catherine Sullivan. Uh, I, I mentioned much of her NASA career. Uh, she left NASA in 1993. She joined the U.S. Naval Reserve as an oceanography officer also in 1988, retiring with the rank of captain in 2006. Uh, 2017, she was the Charles A. Lindbergh Chair of Aerospace History at the National Air and Space Museum. And in spring 2020, uh, uh, Sullivan traveled on the expedition aboard the Triton submarine DSV limiting factor to the bottom of the Challenger Deep, which you've heard us mention so far today. She's also in the podcast world. And later on in this podcast, I get to ask her about that and see what she's up to with her podcast. But I want to venture back to sort of earlier in your career after your graduate how did NASA get on your radar? Uh, well, I have my brother to thank for that. So my brother knew both of us when we were like three or four, you could kind of tell the direction we deeply wanted to head. Mine was very much maps and how things worked uh, and what different places were like. And his was forever airplanes. Now, one of my earliest memories of my brother is hanging on to the chain link fence of a little airport and peering through to look at the airplanes. And I, we really must have been like three and four years old. Uh, so I went home from graduate school uh, Christmas of, I guess, 1976. Uh, I was at graduate school in Canada. NASA does not advertise widely for astronauts in Canada because they're looking for American citizens. So I had not really picked up any of the news of the space shuttle program coming along and the need for astronauts. Uh, I was buried in finishing up my own PhD and frankly trying to find a pathway that would let me get into small submersibles and go study the, volcan the volcanic landforms, the mid-ocean ridges, up close and personal myself. But when I'm home at Christmas that year, uh, my brother, of course, had been tracking the NASA selection avidly. He had already put an application in both as a pilot of the shuttle and as what I became a mission specialist the on-orbit operators, basically. He had an undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering and a lot of flying hours, so that was his hope. And he started lobbying me that I should apply as well. NASA really wanted to diversify the group. They were being explicit about wanting to stuff. They wanted to stuff the front end of the funnel with a lot of people of color, underrepresented minorities, women. It was just, it was untenable, it was a non-starter in the late 1970s to assert that I need, you know, 30 or 35 talented engineers and scientists, and I couldn't find any that are other than white male. I mean, that was socially a non-starter by that time. It was legally a non-starter at that time as well. So right. NASA was trying to really encourage basically all the people they had never cared to talk to in prior astronaut selections that they really did want to talk to you now. Uh, so that's my brother's pitch. How many 26-year-old female PhDs can there be in the world? I completely poo-pooed the idea. I started explaining to them that the kind of deep sea geology I'm interested in is, is 10 to 12,000 feet underwater, and it makes absolutely no sense to add another 200 miles of gap to trying to study that, that phenomenon. It was just, that's nuts. Home I go to Nova Scotia to pick up my studies again, and a couple of weeks later, it must have been in the back of an American scientific journal, I saw one of NASA's advertisements for the space shuttle selection. And the way they described the job of mission specialist in that ad turned on a different light bulb. Uh, I'd been doing expeditions at sea since the senior year, my senior year at university. 
So I knew what, you know, a scientific party embarking on a ship, going out to sea, doing some work. I really understood how that worked. It struck me that what NASA was looking for in this thing called mission specialist was someone who would be a hybrid, if I think of my ocean going world, a hybrid between the ship's engineer, so the person who knows all about how all the ship's systems work and how to make them do whatever you need them to do to get the science done, and the chief scientist who knew all about what are we trying to do scientifically and, and what does it take to do that. So they were looking for people that full time would be working on the shuttle or preparing expeditions to go up on the shuttle. And when, when I recognized that, oh, wait, these, these guys are basically building a research vessel. It's going to go way faster than anything I've been on before. It's going to go vertical instead of horizontal. But I, I loved being at sea. I loved the planning and execution and real-time adaptability of doing work at sea. I, I knew I was good at it. The question in my mind was, it's one thing to be really good at ocean-going expeditions. It's a big leap to a, a more complex uh, ship than than an ocean-going research vessel, and to straddling that role of being sort of both the engineer and the scientist. So the open question is, am I, would NASA judge me talented enough and credentialed enough to make that leap? But, and I figured they're going to have a gazillion people apply, and they're probably not, not going to take all that many. But the only time your odds are zero is if you don't apply. If you don't try. And if you don't try. Uh, and if somehow you do, I did get in, I would get to see the Earth with my own eyes from orbit, and I just could not pass that up. And then the final bit was, well, step back and just ask yourself, so you apply. What's the worst that can happen here? The worst that can happen here is that NASA says no. Okay, what happens if NASA says no? Well, then I go on with the postdoc that I had already secured that was, in fact, diving in those little submersibles to study the deep sea. So to me, this was a win-win proposition. To my mother, it was a little different. When I told her, <laughs> I called them up to tell them I was gonna be interviewed for the astronaut selection. And my dad you know, comes back and forth with all sorts of technical questions. Finally, my mother breaks in and in a little bit of a hesitant, worried voice says, so, so what exactly does this mean? And of course, I'm thrilled. So I just nonchalantly say, oh, it means when I'm done with my degree, I'm either going 200 miles up or 6,000 feet down. That was, <laughs> that was not win-win in my mother's book. <laughs> right, right. Mom's always, <laughs> they yeah. have a way of parsing things out a little bit differently. I yeah, her, her comeback was, isn't there anything exciting on the surface? Right, because mom's also, she, she, her, her, Spidey senses went up the, to the danger, probably of both of those. I'm oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You know, this is this is really fascinating. So really listening to this, and you know, I want to take a break, and then we'll come back. There's something I want to share after this. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset—hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Catherine Sullivan. And we're talking about her 
fascinating career. This, look, this is a history maker. This is a game changer. This is a, a needle mover in science. Uh, she's been on all of the top influential. I believe you're on one of Time Magazine's uh, influential lists and probably many others that I don't know about. But I just want people to understand. Yeah, there have been a few, deservedly so. And certainly someone that we all, as we're coming up, look forward to. But one of the things you just, as I was listening to, it struck me, and I don't know if I realize this about you, is though you sort of broke some of your first records and made history in space, um, the record of going deep into the ocean, the Mariana Trench, really kind of circles back to sort of where you were initially headed in your career to some degree. I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah it was a really really wonderful and you know utterly unexpected bookend i mean i had i had back in 1996 had a chance to do a dive in a different submersible called alvin uh, onto the long volcanic mountains that they circle all of the globe winding through sort of the backbones of the ocean if you will uh, i had a chance to go explore some of that terrain in the pacific but the Marianas trenches, you know, it's legendary. I'm good friends with the gentleman who piloted the first ever submersible, a bathyscaphe, down to the Challenger Deep in 1960, Don Walsh. So I've heard lots of stories I, I've met and talked to, and Jim Cameron, who was the third person down there, and you know, poured all over his submarine and, and heard the whole backstory of how he designed it. So I've kind of kept track with both the deep sea geological studies and these really edge edge of the ocean uh, expeditions to try to get, get to this super deepest point. But it's, you know, it it's not really, certainly for Victor Vescovo, who I dove with, it, the point was not just as an adventurer, get to this deepest point, like, aha, you know, I got there, you didn't. Really what Victor wanted to do, what had fascinated him was the fact that the, all the regions of the ocean that are deeper than 6,000 meters, deeper than 20,000 feet. You, well, you might say, wait, come on, how much of the ocean is that? It's a bunch of skinny little slivers. If you look at it on a map, skinny little blue slivers like the trench along the Aleutians or the trench along the coast of South America. It's, I don't forget the number exactly, but it's on the order of 4% of the surface area of the ocean. Well, how could that matter? Well, those little blue slivers are so deep that they are 40, 40% of the volume of the ocean. 40% wow. of the largest livable habitat on this planet. And there are very few robotic vehicles that can go to those depths. And at the time Victor started conceiving of this, there was no vehicle that could take humans to that depth. So he did not set out just to build a golly gee whiz submersible to go and not something in the record books. He built a surface ship that he bought a surface ship and equipped it so that it could map the bathymetry, the topography of those deep, deep areas wildly better than before. When he started out in many of these regions, you knew the depth you had on your chart was probably plus or minus 150 feet. With the detailed mapping that Victor has done, most of that is, is down to plus or minus about 20 feet. So let's know where they are. Let's know their shape, which can tell you things about their geology. And then let's have a human crewed craft and robotic scientific landers that can go into the deep anytime we want. The first bathyscaphe that dove there got broken enough. Everyone survived, but it could never dive that deep again. 
Jim Cameron sub got broken enough, it could never dive again. Victor in 2020 and 2021 has commonly done three dives a week to Mariana's trench depth. This is, you know, if you translate to the space frontier and say, you know, look, today's space capability, what would a similarly radical change in capability be in outer space? It would be like saying right now today on this day, starting tomorrow, we will have weekly flights to the moon. That's how radical a step forward it is. Wow. Wow. No, no and I, I sense that. We're talking with Kathy Sullivan here on Weather Geeks podcast. You know, it's interesting. You, you spent part of your career after NASA as the head of NOAA, which is the agency for weather, climate, and oceans in this country. Uh, and you've seen the planet from the vantage point of space when you're sort of drifting around or spacewalking, and you've seen the deepest depth of our oceans. Give us your perspective, having experienced both of those, on why tackling climate change is so important. Well, a couple of takeaways really stick with me. Uh, one that came through very vividly from both the space perspective, you know, seeing a thousand miles roughly in any direction and the deep sea, uh, that's actually critical to, to the weather and the climate aspects of what we experience as well. And that is, we have to really understand there is absolutely no place and no living organism on this planet that is not richly interconnected with every other place and every other living organism. There just isn't. I live in Columbus, Ohio. There might be plenty of people around here that say, I'm an inland state. I don't have anything to do with the ocean. Dead wrong. Uh, every other breath you take is provided by the ocean. The fact that you're the, the climate year over year is, is whatever moderate level it is here in Ohio, that's buffered, that's tempered uh, by the ocean. Uh, Probably a fair amount of your protein, even here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, comes from the ocean. Uh, and I mean, more interconnections than we yet know. Uh, and conversely, at the very bottom of the Marianas Trench, 35,800 and some odd feet deep, 200 miles from the tiniest little fly speck of land, you will find microplastics and you will find physical, tangible debris like soda cans and you know, plastic shreds of plastic bags. So even 36,000 feet down, even a place that reminded me of a moonscape with sparse little settling of small invertebrates, uh, no fish, no octopus, but just you know, little guys living there scavenging away. Even there, we are connected to them measurably with the plastics and so forth. They are also connected to us. That's, that's a subtler set of connections that we understand maybe a tiny bit of, but partly because of the limited access to those depths that humankind has ever had. We haven't been there and been able to watch, learn, and measure enough to know all the ways in which these hadal zones connect to us and what the mechanisms are, but I guarantee you they are there. Yeah. You know, I want to shift gears here because I, as I think about your career, you mentioned sort of not just the barriers that you're breaking in terms of altitude or depth, but just barriers as a woman in STEM. And, you know, I know as an African-American in, in STEM, uh, there are still challenges. I mean, I, I'm still very accustomed to walking into rooms where you know, I'm the only one and probably have been for some time. Um, 
you couldn't have come out of school or graduate school saying, I'm going to break these records. I mean, that, that these are things that you sort of did. And I, I, I guess where I'm going with this question is, what has been your biggest challenge? I mean, in life, I mean, I mean, that's a challenge training to walk in space. That's a challenge to go to the depths of the ocean, but it's also a challenge to walk through those doors at NASA uh, and this cohort of, you know, of astronaut trainees, the only woman or few women with certainly some of the perspectives at that time. So I just want to get your thoughts and sort of guidance and, and, and recommendations for the listeners because you've overcome some challenges. I mean, you've been celebrated rightfully so, but you've had some challenges to overcome. What are some of them and how'd you do it? Yeah. You know, I, I have to say compared to stories I hear from uh, many other colleagues, both people of color and uh, fellow women, uh, I, maybe it's the 200% Irish blood in me or some (laughs) other general benevolence that's been bestowed upon me. Uh, I mean, I, honestly never had any of the really toxic, truly toxic, ugly encounters that I know many other people have had. Uh, But in terms of what did propel me and allow me to do the things I've done, I would touch on a couple things. One is, you know, my parents ingrained in me and my brother very equitably from a very early age, uh, essentially the wisdom that no one gets to edit what you're interested in. Uh, that is your interest. And if you're interested in it, we will help you pursue it. You'll learn along the way, whether this is going to be your hobby, a fad, or a lifelong interest or a threat of your career. That's up to you to decide. You know, be put in the effort to master it if it's if it's that important to you. Uh, be honest with yourself about you know how you're how capable you are at it. Build on your strengths but also shore up your weaknesses, not just, I know what I'm passionate about and I'm running away from everything else. No, 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 no. Uh, You have strong muscles intellectually and and weaker ones, just like you would at the gym, work on shoring up the other ones. So, you know, I was sort of inoculated with that knowledge and that backing that I'm okay being interested in anything that I'm interested in. I, you know, certainly bumped up against one or two uh, people along the way. We had a very curmudgeonly, professor uh, my senior year at university. Uh, he was the gateway to a job at the U.S. Geological Survey, and it was known, it was, he'd been heard to say uh, that you know, women just did not belong in the field doing geological field work, which meant no woman in his class was ever going to get his endorsement. I came back from a year overseas studying abroad. It, it was one of the really tough classes. I took it um, If I had stayed in California, I probably would have been well prepared for that class. I was at a disadvantage because of the course makeup I had in Norway, but I had to take it. So I took it and turned in a first laboratory paper that was just horrible. It came back all bled over red. I was crushed, you know, worried I couldn't, did this really mean I couldn't hack it? And I slept on it that night and I knew his reputation, but I, and I don't know where this courage or insight came from, Marshall. But I made an appointment. I went to his office, you know, the next day uh, and put the paper on his desk and said I was really disappointed at the markups. But when I looked at them, they were right. It, it was badly done. I, but then proceeded to say it's not because I can't do it. It's because I was on this different pathway. I didn't have the same preparation. And then essentially said to him, if you will teach more, I will work more. So if you'll give me extra work to do and if you'll do the extra grading on my work, 
you know, I, I can't catch back up and I'll do the work if you'll do the teaching. Very much to his credit, he did that. And when he wrote my evaluation at the end of the course, he gave me a very high mark uh, up in the top of the class and, and saluted the fact that I didn't duck a bad result and I was willing to put the effort in to climb back up and you know, get to the rung on the ladder. I, one other anecdote maybe, you know, when we came into NASA, the six of us in that first class that included women, uh, we, knew, we, were, we knew we were confident that we had gotten through exactly the same wickets as everyone else in that class. Our male classmates, and by the way, this applies also to the three African-Americans and the Asian-American in our class, the 10, 10 strange people and 25 standard white guys. That's how we described ourselves. But we knew we, we knew we were there for the right reasons. We knew we now had to measure up uh, in the real world performance. But we were, I think, astute enough, and with me it took a little bit of coaching, I have to confess. We'd walk in a room representing the flight crew, junior baby astronauts. We haven't actually done anything yet except been given a blue flight suit. If you were smart, you found the person in that room that was gonna chair the meeting. And you went to them ahead of the meeting because there's a hierarchy in these kind of rooms, right? The real players are sitting around the big long conference table and the secretaries and note takers and junior people are around the side of the room. So if you're representing the flight crew, you are at that table. I don't know how you feel about just claiming a place at the table. The flight crew is at that table. You're the representative. You need to step up and own that seat. And if you're smart, you'll go introduce yourself to the person chairing the meeting. And, and without exception, the older men that I did that to when they opened the meeting had the good grace to take the burden off my shoulders and say to the room, basically tell the room who the new face was, tell the room who the hell this woman was, this, you know, there's a woman at the main table, what the hell is that? In every case, this senior person had the good grace to pronounce to the room as chair of the meeting, and this is uh, Dr. Kathy Seldman representing the flight crew, at which point all questions are off. Yeah. But now you got to own it. Right. You got to be authoritative in your word. You can't let people roll over you. If they roll over you, they're rolling over the astronauts that are going to go fly on this mission who you are representing. You might be willing to let someone diss you or insult you or not listen to you, but you can't let the perspective of the flight crew that you're charged with representing, you cannot let that be overlooked. So you have to stand, find your way to stand your ground, own your voice. You can be a brusque, you can do it in different styles, find one that suits you, but you have to stand your ground. You have to own that responsibility. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia and speaking with Dr. Kathy Sullivan, who just gave some amazing life advice. I mean, that's the, that, that, that is advice I would give to my children and probably have shared. You, you really do have to kind of command your space. Otherwise, you've already set the tone for how people are going to perceive you and treat you. So just amazing advice. And in this last segment, 
you know, just a couple of other things. I want to talk about your podcast, uh, but before we get to that, you know, I just want to, again, again, you're, you're a sort of leader of our time in STEM. So I want to get your perspective on where we are in science in general. We face COVID. There are people that have certain perspectives on climate change and vaccinations and so forth. What do we have to do, uh, Kathy, to ensure that science and technology are not feared or are made out to be the bad guy in society and, in fact, are our friends and will help us move forward? What, what is your perspective there generally? Oh, it's my perspective is a sad one because the course of my career in science policy has it started back in an era that started back in the in the mid 80s, uh, which was still an era in which the country at large and politicians, for example, of all stripes, counted on the input of scientists and engineers as neutral foundation stones upon which policy could be built. So it was a place everyone could start. Two plus two is four. That's the best science we've got. Now there's 14 different ways we can go from here based on political views or you know, policy preferences, but we have a touchstone and it, policy solution we come up with, we can check it back against that touchstone. Do we imagine this will work because we're now pretending two and two is six? Come on, two and two is six. It, policy that presumes that is not going to be successful. That consensus, that, that trust, that shared confidence in science and engineering and technology being as, as neutral and dispassionate as it is possible for human beings to be, and therefore a worthy touchstone to base more complex decisions on. That's fraying. It's beyond fraying. It's now be, been weaponized in some areas. And I really fear for where that can take us. Uh, there, you know, there is then not a shred of shared truth in any complex matter. Um, what about a court of law? Is now everything in a court of law just going to be decided on uh, which powerful voice in the room says, well, I think X? Uh, no, what, regardless of what evidence is there. So I, that, that, I don't know how we get out of that or, or find something that draws us back to needing to work together uh, and, and finding some way to rebuild trust across the divisive lines. But I think it's really essential that we do that uh, to remain a pluralistic democracy, to remain a functioning society in a 21st century, highly interconnected world. The other thing I, I'm sort of heartened by is in many districts, many states, many cities, uh, there are more innovative schools uh, and more innovative approaches to education and learning. Uh, and I sometimes deliberately draw a distinction between schooling and learning. Uh, some schooling is learning, but not all learning is schooling. Right. Uh, to get to get more experiential, more project-based. Um, you, when you do something and see a result and then reason through, uh, you really own that knowledge. When you just remember something to say it on the test on Friday, it's not something that you can transport to a new setting and recognize how it applies there and, and, and use it. It's, and that's what we really, that, that's what I would like to see every young person, whether they and whether their terminal schooling is high school or community college or university, able to encounter new circumstances. And instead of just saying, resorting to opinion or saying, I don't know, they can say, well, wait, we can make sense of this. Let's try to make sense of this. Let's work our way through this. We can find a way forward. 
because that's what life is going to deliver you. It's going to deliver you a sick child or a technical problem at work or, you know, some who knows what other circumstance. A COVID and virus. A COVID virus. And and you're either going to be paralyzed or, you know, dive into a cave or lean in and say, okay, what do we know and how can we start to figure this out? And that's what scientists and engineers are wired to do. What do we know and how can we start figuring this out? Exactly. Talking with Kathy Sullivan. I want to end. I understand you're starting a new po podcast or involved with a new podcast. Tell us a little about that. Well, I had been sort of marinating an idea that I thought might become uh, another book. And a couple of friends suggested during the pandemic that I ought to turn it into a podcast instead. Uh, the podcast might become the research pathway by which a book emerges, or it could just be a body of work in its own right. Uh, and what I wanted to do was talk about some of the life lessons, how to navigate a life and a career that I thought might be useful and interesting to especially people in their 20s to late 30s at fairly early stages of their work life. Uh, so it's, it's called Kathy Sullivan Explores at kathysullivanexplores.com. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and what I'm doing is exploring how various fascinating people have navigated life, bringing their stories to the fore. Some of my guests are people uh, that you would know, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, Craig Foster of My Octopus Teacher coming up. Others are people you won't have heard of, but whose life stories are absolutely fascinating. Marshall, one I know you would get a lot out of and be fascinated by is a friend of mine here in town, Yvette McGee-Brown. She's born in segregated Columbus in 1960 to a poor single mother on the east side of town. Ends up, goes to college, which is the first place she discovered she was poor. Didn't quite know that yet. Uh, gets a law degree and, and the pinnacle of her career, not the end by any means, but became the first African-American wo woman to serve on the Ohio Supreme Court. You mm. know, that's a story with a lot of lessons for anybody in it. Or Morgan Smith, 21 years old, just graduated from NYU back in May, but comma, has already written and produced two off-Broadway shows and created a fully digital universe called Averno that many have likened to the Marvel universe, except for musicals, all designed, conceived, and produced during the pandemic with a global team of people largely under 30. Fascinating wow. creative talent. That's un unbelievable. Yeah, you know, I'm you know part of what gives me hope and all of the despair that we've been is that talented youth that that I, I get to see through my lens as a professor at the University of Georgia and through my own kids. So yeah. it is inspiring. Oh, salted, salted in by the way between the interview episodes of my podcast are uh, little shorts, you know, ten minute little taste tests, and so far most of them are stories what I consider the funny stories from my time as an astronaut. But I've I've kind of ever never told before like <laughs> no no wait did you and sally ride really swap identities and pretend to be each other at a big fancy party one day <laughs> and yes we did you can hear about it yeah i gotta turn it go to the podcast to get the story on that one and and you, you did give us the website on that are you also on any social media that anyone can follow you on uh yeah, uh, Kathy Sullivan Explorers.com is the website and podcast. Uh, Astronaut Kathy Sullivan on Instagram, Astro KDS on Twitter. Uh, okay, very good. To see people. 
Yeah, definitely check it out. We are out of time, but before I end this podcast, we've got to do something we do at the end of every podcast here on the Weather Geeks. It's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Kenny Blumenfield. Kenny is a climatologist for the state of Minnesota who has a passion for weather history. He has also created a documentary movie on Minnesota winters called The Story of Winter. Now, if you or someone you know is a deserving candidate for our Geek of the Week, be sure to follow our social media pages. Kathy, so grateful to have you on this episode of Weather Geeks. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Marshall. Appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And for all of you that listen, thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Weather Geeks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.